All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Man, I love worshiping. You know, just getting lost in worship, raising your hands to the Lord. And in your heart or actually physically on your knees, what a blessing to come before the Lord. Anyway, Genesis chapter 9 is where we're at today. Go ahead and open your Bibles. Looking back over our last few weeks together, you know, we remember that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We read that in Genesis 6, 8. And it was through this grace, Noah and his family was saved. And grace, it's unearned, unmerited, completely undeserved favor. Noah and his family, they were saved by grace. And Noah's received salvation exactly the same way that we receive salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we see Noah's faith. It was evidenced in obedience. He was instructed by God to build the ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, and we read repeatedly, you might remember, the description of Noah is, says that Noah did according to all God commanded him, so he did. And then in Genesis chapter 7, we saw the Lord invite Noah and his family into the ark of salvation. We heard God give Noah this invitation to come, to come into the ark. And the Lord was in the boat with them, we discovered, and he shut the door behind him. And we read in Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 9, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventh day of the month, on that day, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I can't even imagine, I can't even begin to imagine what's going on here. I mean, it must have been so terribly frightening. I mean, the cataclysmic events that were occurring, the fountains of the deep were being broken up. And I guess in a very real sense, right? I mean, it was probably like apocalyptic in a sense, apocalyptic in nature. Yet Noah and his family, they were safe. They were secure. There was no reason for them to fear because the Lord was in the boat with them. And the water we read prevailed 150 days on the face of the earth. And then Genesis 8, we read that the ark finally, after a period of time, comes to rest there on the mountain of Ararat. And a year and 10 days after Noah got into that ark, a year and 10 days, the Lord spoke to Noah and told him to go out of the ark. And the first thing that Noah did on exiting the ark, we read, was he built an altar to worship the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He blessed the Lord for God's grace, for his judgment, his salvation, and his provision, right? I can't help but notice that's exactly what we've experienced, each one of us has experienced those things from the Lord. We've been saved by grace. Our sins were judged at the cross where God laid our sins on Jesus Christ. 
And we have salvation as we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior in the cross. Man, what a glorious provision of God the cross is to us, right? Where he provided salvation for us. He cleansed us from our sins. It was such glorious provision for us. And he continues to provide for our daily needs. The Lord continues to provide for each one of us. And how I pray that we would be a church that would respond in worship, that we would just lavish worship on the Lord, pouring out heartfelt praise on the Lord, worshiping the Lord and blessing him. Now we come to chapter 9 and verse 1. We read, so God blessed Noah. As Noah poured out his worship on the Lord, God blesses Noah. And if you don't know this, if you're not convinced of this, you know, I want you to know this today. Our God is a blessing God. Turn over real quick. Keep your fingers here, of course, in chapter 9. But turn over real quick to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. You're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. But Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord tells Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you. Now, this is a description. This is our God. Our God is a blessing God. He continues on to say, and keep you. You know, our God is a keeping God. He keeps us safe. He keeps us on his mind. He keeps us in his sight. He keeps us in his heart. He keeps us close to his heart. And then it goes on to say, the Lord make his face shine upon you. What's this a description of? A shining face. What does it mean to you? Well, somebody, when we say that their face is shining, their face is beaming, what do we mean? It means they're just happy. They're, they're joyful. Our God is a happy, joyful God. And he wants his happiness and joy to just, he wants to pour it out upon us. And he continues, and be gracious to you. Again, our God is a gracious God. He gives when we don't deserve it. That's something to praise him for right there. He gives and he gives. And Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounded, grace, the literal translation would be grace superabounded. It says grace abounded much more. But the literal translation would be grace superabounded. Where there was sin, man, there's so much more grace. And I just love it. And then he goes on and says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. His eyes are always on you. The Lord's eyes, and that's what it means, is lifting up his countenance. His eyes are lifted up upon you. And it's not because, you know, he's waiting for you to mess up, man. As soon as you mess up, I'm going to get you. No, it's not like that at all. His eyes are upon you because he loves you. He's so in love with you, he can't take his eyes off of you. I just love it. Our God is in love with you. He's in love with me. That's a, a greater miracle in my mind. And he finishes and he says, and give you peace. Our God is a peace giving God. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. 
Do you understand that today? That Jesus is at peace. You understand that? He's giving us his peace. Jesus is at peace. He's not worried about what's happening with COVID. I mean, he's not worried if college football is going to start on time. That's what I'm currently worried about. But, you know, he's not worried about it. He's not worried about if, you know, are things going to work out one way or the other? I mean, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? It's not like that. Jesus is at perfect peace. And God continues. He tells Moses to tell Aaron. He says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And God says, Moses, tell Aaron to say this to my people. Every time they come to worship me, every time they come to inquire of me, every time, anytime they come, I want Aaron, Moses, I want Aaron to say this to my people. These are the words I want him to say in the hearing of my people. I want this to become part of their being. I want this to be imprinted on their DNA. For Moses, this is who I am. Wow, do you know that today? Do you know that our God is a, is a blessing God? Do you know he's a keeping God? Do you know that he's a happy God? Do you know he's a gracious God? Do you know he's a God that can't take his eyes off of you because he's so in love with you? Listen to me, church family. This is God's word to us. He wants us to know his love for us is so great. His love for you is so great. You know, he can't keep his eyes off of you. And he's a God that desires to give you peace. This is who our God is. Do you know that today? Are you aware of this? Are you embracing this? And are you hanging on to it like your life depends upon it? And also, I would ask you this. Are you sharing it? Is this the message that you're sharing? This is the message that Truckee and the world needs to hear. Well, verse 1, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same command that God gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28. It's the same command. God's heart and God's purposes, they don't change. And frankly, I tell you what, I like this because God's not a moving target. You know, there's no frustration in, in serving him. There's no frustration in trying to please him. I mean, God doesn't say one thing today and then change his mind and say something else tomorrow so that you're always having to have to play catch up. No, that's not the way God is. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James says it this way, James 1.17. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is unchangeable. He's immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and all on all the fish of the sea. They're given into your hand. So back in Genesis 1, God gives Adam dominion over, you know, over the earth, over the animals, the, the birds and the fish. And here, God is giving dominion to Noah over the animals, but it's just a little bit different here. Prior to this time, it would appear that the animals and the people, they closely interacted. 
In Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, we read of the millennial kingdom. And during the millennial kingdom, we read there that the wolves and the lambs, they're going to dwell together. The leopards and the goats, they're going to be taking naps together. They're just going to lay down, take a nap together, no problem. And kids, they're going to lead lions and calves. And the bear and the ox, they're going to be out in the field grazing together. And, you know, also it says little babies, they're going to have vipers as pets. You know, when we first moved to Hungary, it's kind of funny because uh, we didn't know it. But there are vipers in Hungary. And Brian, you know, God bless Brian. He's just such a neat spirit, but he's just very inquisitive. And you know what? He saw something on the ground, looks like a little stick, and he sees it's a snake. So he's getting down there. He's like, eh. And we see it. We're like, what? Brian, get away. It was a viper. You know, it's just crazy. But anyway, in the millennial kingdom, you know, it's not going to be like that. In the millennial kingdom, Isaiah continues, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Completely. How wonderful is it going to be? And it would seem that the millennial kingdom is a restoration of what the original creation is supposed to be like. And if you're an animal lover, Tina and I, we're animal lovers. You know, how amazing is it going to be just to hang out with all these animals? I can't wait, these different animals. I'll tell you another Brian story real quick. When we first moved to Hungary, you know, the zoo there in Budapest, it's kind of a cool zoo. Eastern Europe's a little different. You know, you want to feed the rhinoceros a snicker bar? There you go. Give them a snicker bar. You know, what do you want to give the giraffe? You want to give them, you know, like your ham sandwich? Give them your ham sandwich. Nobody cares. But anyway, there was these mandrills. You know what mandrills are? They're like the baboons with like the red and blue noses. And they got these really like big teeth. And uh, anyway, Brian, we're sitting there and there's this glass there. It's probably like, I don't know, three inches thick or something like that. And Brian's sitting there and there's this mandrill right in front of him. And the mandrill just kind of looks at Brian and shows him his teeth, right? So Brian shows the mandrill his teeth. And the mandrill's like, what? <laughs> he shows him his teeth again. And Brian, you know, he just like shows him his teeth. Ooh, mandrill's getting like worked up, right? So the mandrill turns around, shows Brian his butt. <laughs> so, you know, Brian, he just turns around, gives the mandrill his butt, right? And it's funny because in the back you see some uh, teenage mandrills maybe, adolescent mandrills. And then in the very back there's some moms and some little baby mandrills. And now this big mandrill, he's getting worked up, man. He's getting really worked up. And he comes up, he starts slapping the glass. And you, know, you see these teenagers, they coming up and they slap the glass, but then they run away real quick, you know. And the whole time Brian's just playing around, gives them the butt and stuff like that again. And uh, these little babies, they want to come forward, but mom grabs them, man, because this guy's a mandrill offender, Brian. So it's kind of funny. But you know what's weird about it is we came back another time. It was a different time. We come back to the zoo, and now their mandrills are outside in this cage. You know, it's kind of like one of those pits and a mountain going up the other side. And we're just sitting there, everybody's all happy, and Brian, he kind of looks over the edge <laughs> to take a look at the mandrills, and they remembered him. Man, they got worked up. They started getting all wild and shouting and everything like that. But you know, in the millennial kingdom, it's going to be great because the mandrills are going to just love to hang out with Brian. It's going to be awesome. Anyway, but now 
at this time, Genesis chapter 9, now God is going to put the fear of men into the hearts of animals. Previously, it wasn't there. And this is probably to protect them because now the animals are going to be dinner. Verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. So up to this point, Noah and his family, they're all vegetarians. There's no dietary laws at this point. There's no dietary restrictions. Noah's free to eat shrimp. He eats lobsters, whatever he wants. Everything was food for him. And I'm sure that there was a few things that Noah tried that he was happy to leave out of his weekly meal planner. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't mind escargot. You go to France, you eat escargot. But the reality is it takes a whole lot of butter and a lot of garlic to make those snails palatable. But anyway, you know what? If you're a vegan, hey, I think that's wonderful. Good for you. If you're a, you know, one of those people that can't eat enough meat, hey, God bless you. That's cool too. There's no dietary restrictions at all for the believer today. If you want to look, look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, here in regards to dietary restrictions. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. There's going to be an apostasy. Giving heed to deceiving spirits, and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer and I just want to encourage you boy you know if you're not in the habit of saying grace over your meals say grace I mean three times a day what a great opportunity that is just for us to turn our hearts to the Lord and just give him thanks and praise for what he's done for us anyway there are things to tell you the truth that uh you know I try to avoid you know but nothing it's not biblical. It's just for me, it's health reasons, right? There's no dietary restrictions for the believer. God gives permission here to eat meat. He gives us permission to Noah. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because there's not enough vegetation on the earth right now, that fruits and vegetables that would be able to sustain Noah and his family. Maybe because of the cataclysmic changes that have occurred, that now the earth is not going to be as productive as it was prior to the flood. But either way, God, he adds a stipulation right here. Verse four, he says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. The blood needed to be drained from the meat before it could be eaten. From the beginning, we've seen that the way to approach God is through the shed blood of the innocent in place of the guilty. And here God gives us further instruction, gives Noah further instructions that the blood is to be honored and it's to be respected. Life is in the blood. 
And we see here the very first brush strokes. It's just a beautiful thing to see the very first brush strokes of this amazing picture that the Lord is painting of the Messiah who's going to give his life. He's going to shed his life-giving blood that we might be saved. Verse 5 says, Surely for your life blood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So God has put the fear of man into the hearts of the animals. And now he's putting the fear of God into the hearts of men. God is initiating his law in regards to murder here. Now, at the same time as he's instituting these laws, he's also instituting capital punishment. And he says, if any animal kills someone, that animal has to die. And later that becomes part of the law, Exodus chapter 21, which says, if an ox, you know, if you have an ox and he gores somebody and that person dies, then that ox has to be put to death. It has to be stoned. And he also says in the law of anyone kills another, he says it here. This is where he's instituting it. If anyone kills another, and the idea here is murder, if anyone kills another, then his life is to be required for the murdered individual. Capital punishment it's a biblical principle. It's introduced and it's endorsed by God. Okay? This isn't a political statement on my part. I'm just telling you what the Bible has to say. And you may not agree with this, but you know what? I would ask you, I would ask anybody who doesn't agree with the idea of capital punishment, and I would say, with all due respect, who's wiser, you or God? Speaking of governments and the role of governments in our society, Paul, he writes under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. He says this for speaking of government, police officials. He says, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And, you know, I just want to take a minute here right now, okay? I mean, a lot of all the things that are going on in our country, especially in regards to, like, police brutality and things like that, you know, before you just turn things off and just say, that's enough, you know, just give me a chance. Just sit down and just, with an open heart, hear what's being said. The idea behind government, part of its responsibility is keeping the guilty parties accountable, for their crimes. And sadly, we've taken a position as a country and mankind in general that uh, we know better than God. You know, capital punishment, it's kind of too cruel. And I think it's interesting, and I think it's a sign of where we are as a country. You see, the further away we get from the Bible, the more foreign this idea of capital punishment seems to us. I remember... Not too long ago, I was watching a documentary on prisons, and it happened to be about prisons in Germany. And they were holding out the German prisons as the model of prison reform. 
Their prisons, the documentary would have us believe, they were so advanced. You know, the rate of repeat offenders, it was so low. And surprisingly, as you watch this documentary, you learned that murderers, they get the weekends off. They get to go back and hang out with their families. Not that the family gets to come and visit them in prison. They get to do that too. But murderers, they get to leave the prison and go hang out with their family. After five or 10 years, man, they get out. I mean, 15 years for murder. I mean, that was really a, a terrible, aggravated assault. But five or 10 years, roughly, they're out. And that's what justice is today. Five or 10 years for taking a life. And I don't want to burden you with my views, but honestly, personally, I'm willing to side with God and to see who's going to be proven right at the end of time. Now, again, the Bible teaches that when a murderer is not punished, his guilt defiles the land. Again, turn back over to Numbers chapter 35, 29 through 33. Numbers 35, 29 through 33. It says, and these things shall be a statute of judgment for you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell on the land before the death of the priest. You shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. And again, there's a difference in the Bible between killing and murder. Not all killing is murder. There's a difference between premeditated murder, involuntary manslaughter, and just accidental death. And we're given an example in Deuteronomy chapter 19 of a man, you know, he's using an ax and the ax head flies off. It hits another man in the head and he ends up dying. That person then can run to a city of refuge and be safe until the case can be properly investigated. And if they find out that it was in fact accidental, that person, he was allowed to live in the city of refuge safe from the avenger of blood. Now, during this time, there was no police force. So when somebody was killed, a family member would go out and exact vengeance. But, you know, they were not allowed to harm the guilty party, the one that killed accidentally your family member, as long as they remained in the city of refuge. And when the high priest died, well, then that person was free to leave the city he was free to leave the city of refuge and nobody could then touch him or harm him at that point. And I love this picture of the city of refuge and what it represents. And the reason why I love it is I think it represents two different things. They're both true, I believe. So the first representation is we see often in the Bible that God is our refuge. Psalm 46, 
Psalm 62, Psalm 91, Psalm 142. And we run into him and we're safe. You know, it's such beautiful imagery. And Jesus, who is our high priest, and it's through the death of our high priest that we're exonerated and released, not having to answer for our sins. I mean, it, we're set free. It's such a beautiful picture. But I think there's another picture at the same time. I think there's another way to just view the city of refuge. And it's this way. The offending party, he has to stay in the city of refuge to remain safe. The offending party, he has to be there. And as long as the high priest is alive, he has to stay there to remain secure in that city of refuge. No one can touch him while he's in the city of refuge. Nobody can hurt him while he remains in the city of refuge. Well, Hebrews 7.25 says our high priest ever lives. He always lives to make an intercession for us. Our salvation is secure in Jesus as long as he lives. Outside, though, of that city of refuge, outside of Jesus, well, there's no guarantees. As long as he lives, we must remain in the city of refuge to remain safe and secure. And so I love this picture of the city of refuge because both scenarios in my mind are true. Now, I will say this regarding capital punishment. You know what? We're a fallen people. And there are abuses in our society and there are injustices in our society. That's no debate. That, of course, is, is accurate. And that's why we need to pray for our leaders. You know, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, if you're on the right side or the left side. I don't care about any of that. All I care about is this. As believers, we have an obligation given to us by God that we're to pray for our leaders, the country, our leaders. You know what? <laughs> they need our prayers. They just do. And what we see in these verses is God, back in Genesis, God has put the fear of man in the hearts of the animal, and he's put the fear of God in the hearts of man. But the problem that we're facing is what happens to society when it no longer has a fear of God in the culture, when there's no longer a fear of God in that culture, what's that society look like? Well, you know what? Turn on the news today and you'll witness what a culture looks like when there's no fear of God in it any longer. Turn on a movie today and you'll see what it looks like when there's no fear of God in the hearts of men any longer. We need to allow our hearts as a church. We need to allow our hearts as believers in Jesus Christ we just need to allow our hearts to break tonight and every day. We need to allow our hearts to break over what's going on in our town, what's going on in our country, and what's going on in our world. You know, I looked up some statistics. Truckee needs Jesus. You know, it didn't say that, but that's the reality. Truckee needs Jesus. 27% of the residents of Truckee identify themselves as some type of Christian religion. So there's certain percentages Baptist, certain percentages Methodist, certain percentages Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Catholic. How many of that 27% in your mind, you just think about it, 
How many of them do you think are really born again, Bible-believing, going to heaven, believers in Jesus Christ? You know what? Even if all of them, even if the entire 20% of those people that say they're believers in Christianity, even if all of them are going to heaven, that means 73% of our town is lost today without any hope. I mean, you do the math, 73% of 16,000, whatever the population is here. I mean, our town is in desperate need of Jesus. You know what? Our country, man, our country is a mess. You know, the world is completely broken. We need revival. We need Jesus. The International Labor Organization estimates that there's 40.3 million, with an M, 40.3 million victims of human trafficking globally with hundreds of thousands in the United States. Each year, an estimated 600,000 to 800,000 men, women, and children are trafficked each year. Man, God help us to see a need to break over the condition of those people in our town and in our country and in the world that don't know Jesus. Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Because man is made in the image of God, his life is inherently precious and sacred. However, you did not know it by looking at our country today, right? 125,000 abortions occur every day in this country, 365 days a year. There's over 20,400,000 abortions that have occurred this year alone in the United States. And it's only June. God, forgive us for not being like shocked. I mean, our hearts get so callous to the world around us that Hey, 20 million. I mean, you know what? Six million Jews died in the Holocaust. And and that was terrible. Don't get me wrong. That was terrible. But 20 million little babies aborted this year alone. And we're only in the sixth month. Lord, please, please, Lord, send revival. Man, so heartbreaking. Verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast on the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast on the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, this covenant, this promise that God is making, it's a unilateral covenant. God is the only one involved in the covenant. It's him that's going to fulfill the covenant. It's completely and solely dependent on God. So God is saying, I establish my covenant. I'm going to do it. It's going to stand There'll be no change to it because I cannot lie. I will never again destroy the earth 
by flood for the purpose of judgment. And you might notice how serious God is in making this covenant, making this promise. He says three times, he calls it my covenant. Verse 9, verse 11, and verse 15. And God repeats three times, it's my covenant, to show us that it is sure. And it has been sure, and it will continue to be sure. The world will never again be judged by water. Next time it's going to be judged by fire. 2 Peter 3, 3-7 says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the waters and in the waters, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You know what? There's a way to escape the judgment that's coming by fire. And that's just by coming to the cross and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. The Bible says if you'll turn from your sins, or in other words, you repent, if you'll turn from your sins and you'll turn to God, you can be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. If you'll do that, God will meet you right there where you're at, right where you are. He'll cleanse you and he'll make you a child of his. What possibly could be worth more to get a, anyone to walk away from that offer? Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. By the way, the rainbow is to be a reminder to God primarily. It's a reminder to God of his promises, not to us. We're reminded of the promise when we see it, but it's to be a reminder of God. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, I'm going to remember when I see it. Be that as it may be. I personally, I like rainbows. I don't know about you. I mean, it, you're driving down the street and boy, you see a rainbow. It's kind of exciting to see it, especially when it's sharp and it's clear. A few weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago or so, somebody posted on Facebook, I think it was, I don't, I don't know, but a picture of downtown Truckee. And you know, the sky is gray and cloudy, kind of stormy looking, but the streets, you know, just fresh and bright because it had just rained. And there was a rainbow that went over Midtown, that downtown area. And, you know, it was just so beautiful. I mean, that must have been such a, a beautiful sight to see. Because, you know, pictures don't do justice to the, the real sight. 
And the picture was just a, a beautiful picture. I also love the science behind rainbows. But I wonder how Noah and his family felt about rainbows. Because God tells Noah, when you're looking up at the rainbow, I'll be looking down on it. Before the flood, there was the light coming through that vapor canopy. And maybe, you know, a rainbow was an everyday sight before the flood. Maybe after the flood, that vapor canopy, maybe that's when the rainbow first appeared when it began raining and then the sun come, came out. I don't really know. But now God says, Noah, this is God's promise. It's, it's kind of beautiful. It says, Noah, when it starts getting a little thundery outside, when it starts raining a little bit, Noah, when you, when you see a storm there on the horizon, you don't have to be feeling threatened or afraid. You know, you just look up and you remember when you see my rainbow, it's a covenant, which I've promised that I'm never going to bring that type of judgment on the world again. You know, it must have been way more comforting to Noah and his family seeing a rainbow than it is to any of us. I think we should be reminded and be conscious of the fact that when we're looking up at a rainbow, God is looking down. And I think it's also very interesting. There are three covenants in our lives, actually, that has a visual reminder for us. You know, the first one's the rainbow. We, we see it right here. And we should take comfort in God's promise, right? The rainbow, it's a sign of God's trustworthiness and his faithfulness. God is, God is worthy of our trust. He keeps his promise. He's kept this promise that the rainbow represents for thousands of years. He's completely faithful and we can rest in all of his promises. The second covenant that I see that has a visual representation for us, it's the wedding ring. It's a sign of the marriage covenant. And when we look down, you know, and you see your wedding ring, we should remember the vows that were made to God. I like it when you go to a wedding and people write their own vows. I mean, some of them are just like, wow, that's, that's so amazing. I mean, how do people do that? But then some of them, some of them are a little strange. And you're like, wow, I mean, how do people do that? Here's some that I heard. I love it. <laughs> I want to grow old and crusty together to shake our collective fist at teenagers and to talk endlessly about the old days when things were better, cheaper, and generally more wholesome. What a great vow at your wedding day, huh? Here's another one. I promise not to drink your drinks, even though I'm really thirsty and your drink is literally right there. Here's another one. I promise to love you, honor you, but not obey. That's a little creepy. It doesn't matter what it is you said in your marriage vows. The vow that is made to God at our weddings is that we'll give our lives for our spouses. We'll put their needs and their desires above our own. Men, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Sacrificially, selflessly, again, putting your wife and her well-being and her interest above your own. And ladies, whether you said it or not, your vow to God is that you would promise to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Whoa, wait a minute, Gary. 
that's enough of that male chauvinistic nonsense, that attitude you got. Listen, submission doesn't mean you're less of a person. Submission is beautiful. Jesus is God. He's equal to, he's no less than God the Father. But what did he do? He submitted to the Father's plan so that we might be saved, right? Submission is strength and humility on fire. It's only our world that has made the world submission just an ugly word. And that being said, both loving our wives as Christ loved the church and uh, submitting to our husband as, as unto the Lord. I mean, those are impossible commands, which that's the vow that we made to God when we're married. That's the way he sees it. That's his command for us is when we're getting married. And that's what we're saying we agree to. Our vows are to God. Yet I believe our vow, even though it is to God, his heart is for us is to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in such a way that we can live out those vows, to include him in our marriage relationship in such a way that we're empowered to fulfill those vows to God. And as we seek to humbly submit to God and to obey him and yield to him, you know what he's going to do is he's going to carry us through in those difficult times in our marriages. Well, the three representations of three visual representations of covenants. We got the rainbow, the wedding ring, and finally, one that's in our life is very common. It's communion. Yeah, it is a visual reminder of, of the new covenant that's in his blood. The communion is a memorial. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. The promise of forgiveness as we come to him and place our faith in him. It's a reminder of the shame and suffering that he endured in order that we might be saved. You know, it's a reminder that sin results in death. And when we come to the communion table, we're to be reminded of how our sins are washed away in the blood of Christ as he has promised us. He has been so very faithful. We are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When you remember it, you just cry out and just say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. Verse 18, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, God is telling us this for a reason, okay? He's going to make a point by saying this a few times, that Ham is the father of Canaan. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. All of us, our relationship at the end of the road to one of these three boys. From these three boys came all the nations of the world as we know them. In fact, you know, it's interesting, Genesis chapter 10, we're going to get into it next week, Lord willing. But William F. Albright, 1891 to 1917, he was the greatest archaeologist in modern times. A quote that I remember of his is that ever been an archaeological find that's ever disproved the Bible, it's always substantiated the Bible. And anyway, he says in regards to Genesis chapter 10, the, the table of nations, it's the most accurate record of ancient nations in existence. There's nothing that compares to it. 
Continuing on, verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. When he drank of the wine and was drunk, he became uncovered in his tent. Now, this is the first mention of wine in the Bible. We frequently see drunkenness and nakedness linked together in the Bible. I heard a saying once says, first a man takes a drink and then the drink takes the man. One out of 10 people who will take their first sip of alcohol will become an alcoholic. It's heartbreaking. There's no prohibition. I certainly don't see a prohibition against alcohol in the Bible, but there is definitely a prohibition about being drunk. That's a sin. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. You might want to get a pencil and paper, okay? You know what the leading cause of drunkenness is in the world? Drinking. <laughs> you don't drink, you can't get drunk, you know? But anyway, I got a million of them, folks. Two shows on Saturday, right? You know, I'm here all week. Listen, you want to have a glass of wine with your dinner? Hey, that's okay. Don't worry about it. If we go out to lunch and you want to have a beer, you know what? You're not going to stumble me. Go right ahead. You have that freedom. However, if your freedom stumbles a brother, you need to rethink your freedom out of love for that brother. Interesting to me is the first context that we see drinking in, first context we see alcohol in, it's in failure and sin. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this is the only failure of Noah recorded in the Bible. And I think it's certainly recorded for a number of reasons, but one of them is it's a reminder to us that there's none righteous. No, not one. And I think also it's a proof that the Bible is actually the word of God. I mean, think about it for a second. If you were to write a book, would you make all of your heroes just complete failures? Abraham, he failed miserably. He didn't lie twice about his wife. If you read it carefully, Genesis chapter 20, repeatedly, that was his normal thing to lie about his wife. It wasn't just two times. You know, look at Jacob. Man, that guy was failure deluxe. Moses, he's going to get mad. He's going to smite the rock a second time. And he's going to be disqualified from going into the promised land. The meekest man ever lived upon the earth. Out of control anger. David, man, did David fail, right? There's Bathsheba. There's Uriah. He's a man of blood. He's hot-tempered, you know. Nabal says something. He's going to go down and kill Nabal and all the men with him. And Peter... Come on, good night. Every time Peter opened his mouth, it was like, you know, failure coming out of it. God uses ordinary people like you and I to accomplish extraordinary things so that he will receive all the glory. Now, we're not told how Noah arrived at being naked. You know, maybe he's putting on his jammies, you know, he's bouncing there with one leg and he just goes down, he passes out. You know, we don't know. And we shouldn't speculate. Okay, but at any rate, Noah, he's drunk. Ham sees him and it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And the word saw here, it means to gaze intently. So what Ham is doing is he's staring at his dad. And he went out and told his two brothers. And again, the Hebrew word here 
gives it a picture that he tells them with delight. I mean, what's going on is he's mocking his dad. He's making fun of him. He's gossiping. I mean, he's just laughing at his dad. Total disrespect. In that culture, that's just terrible. That's just awful. You know, you're to honor your parents. And even today, you know, kids, you're to honor your parents. You're to give your parents just the utmost amount of respect and honor. We all make mistakes. You need to honor your parents. Well, this, what we see, Ham, it's just blatant, outright disrespect. And it doesn't mean anything more than that. Okay, people want to read into the story. You know what? This is just what the word says. It's interesting how you relate to somebody else's sin actually says a lot about your own heart. Verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth, they show this tremendous respect and honor for their dad and that they went in and they covered his nakedness going backwards so they wouldn't see him. You know, that's what love does. That's what grace does, right? It covers sin. Verse 24, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And we don't know how he knew. Maybe while he's laying there, he's a little bit drunk. He's not quite passed out. And he just hears this conversation. He hears Ham making fun of him. And when he sobers up, he remembers it. That could be it. Maybe he just overhears a conversation of the boys afterwards when he wakes up. We just don't know. Verse 25, then he said, now, this is interesting, okay? Verses 25 through 27 are the only recorded words of Noah that we have in the Bible. Then he said, cursed be Canaan. This curse was on Canaan, okay? It's not a curse on Africans or any nonsense like that, right? The descendants of Ham, they were the Egyptians. They were the Persians. They were some people that were there from North Africa. And the curse is on none of them. The curse is on Canaan. It's not even on Ham. It's only certain descendants of his. And the Canaanites, remember, they were the enemy of Israel. What I think is going on here is Noah, he's actually prophesying much like Jacob did at the end of his life, Genesis chapter 49. But Noah, he's, he's not actually cursing. He's prophesying about the lives of his boys and their descendants. Somebody might say, well, boy, that doesn't seem fair that God would curse a whole race of people. Well, wait a minute. Before you judge too quickly, think about it. Rahab, she was a Canaanite. She placed her faith in the God of the Bible and became the grandmother of David, the king of Israel. She was woven into the lineage of the Messiah. Whatever you have done in your life, whatever your family history looks like, you know, there's tremendous blessing for you in the Lord. He's willing to make your life a miracle. It's nothing for God to make your life a miracle. I mean, God is in the miracle business, if you don't know it. Well, it says, then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He doesn't bless Shem here. He blesses God. Abraham, he's a descendant of Shem. And again, I think Noah's prophesying and he's blessing knowing 
that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Shem. The Messiah, the true rest, is going to come through the line of Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Japheth, he's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. And it's in the tents of Shem that he's going to find true religion. It's in the tents of Shem that Japheth, he's going to find rest there is what Noah's saying. Verse 28, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And if the chronology is correct, okay, Noah lives until Abraham is 58 years old. I mean, how wild is that? Abraham is able to hear firsthand from Noah and from Shem about all of God's faithfulness and how he brought them through the flood. And, you know, as you just go through the Bible and we'll just close with this real quick. But when you look at the book of Acts, what do you see? We see an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a descendant of Ham. He gets saved and baptized. In Acts chapter 9, we see Paul. He's a descendant of Shem. He gets saved. In Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius. He's a descendant of Japheth. He gets saved. God has opened the door of salvation to anyone who would take a step of faith and walk through it. Salvation is offered to everyone. And you know, if you're not a believer today, you know, I would ask you, would you walk through that door and, and be saved? You know, I'm frequently asked by people, you know, what's God's will for my life? When people ask others, you know, what's God's will for my life? You know, they like scratch their head. Whoa, that's, that's a difficult question. I don't really know. Well, listen, I'll tell you what God's will is for your life. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. God's will for your life is that you would believe in Jesus and be saved, that you would believe in the Messiah, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins in the world. God's heart is that you would place your faith in the finished work of the cross and receive forgiveness and live forever in heaven with God, the eternal creator, God of the universe, that you would be in his presence. Now you know God's will for your life. What are you going to do with it? If you would like to receive forgiveness of your sins, you just say with all the sincerity of your heart, you just bow your knee and just say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. Come into my heart. Cleanse me of my sin and give me the power to live my life for you. I believe in you. I believe you died for my sins, that you were buried and third day resurrected. Lord God, forgive me. And you know what? Like I said, God will meet you right there where you're at. And it will be glorious. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and you'll be in heaven with him. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for your word today. Lord, I'm thankful for this chapter. It's an exciting chapter to me, Lord. Just the idea is I'm looking up at those rainbows. Lord, you're looking down. Just the idea of, of seeing the wedding ring on my hand, understanding that I've made vows to you. I've made vows to you in regards to my life as it relates to Tina. 
As husbands, we make vows to you. As wives, we make vows to you to give our lives and put the interests of our spouse before our own. Lord, I thank you for that reminder. And God, of course, the communion table. Thank you for the bread and the cup, Lord. Thank you for giving your body that it would be beaten and bruised for my iniquity, Lord. Thank you for shedding your blood that we would be forgiven, washed in your blood and cleansed of all unrighteousness, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. Give us a heart that breaks over this world, over our town. And Lord, give us a fire in our heart that we got to go tell people of this salvation that's available, Lord. Would you work that in us, Lord? For those that, Lord, maybe don't know you, I just pray you'd work on their heart and you just help them just take that step, Lord. Just I know that there's a battle going on within the heart, Lord. Just like, I want to, but I can't. What if? And I know I want to. Lord, would you just help them take that step of faith and cry out to you so that you can meet them, forgive them, and cleanse them. Lord, we, we love you, God. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bless Calvary Chapel. Lord, bless Calvary on the Rock. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us uh, just a tremendous witness for you in this town, Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, have a blessed evening. I love you guys. We're praying for you. Come out Tuesdays, 9 a.m. for prayer, staff prayer. Just join with us in prayer. Come out Saturdays after July 18th. Join us in prayer, one hour, both times. Metal Park, Sunday, 10 a.m. Bring water, bring sunshade, sunscreen, bring some shade. Bring an umbrella or something like that. Make it a little bit more comfortable. Look forward to meeting all of you. God bless you. Have a great night.